Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sunday Forum at St. Luke's Church. We're so happy you're with us. Uh, a lot is going on, as you can well imagine, both in the culture at large, but also with the pandemic. And we're going to focus in on the pandemic today um, because some shifts are uh, afoot and we want to explore them. Um, for her third visit with us, she has been so generous with us, uh, Dr. Jody Guest. She is an epidemiologist, a research, research professor um, on the faculty and the vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of, of Public Health at Emory. And she also serves as uh, one of our diocesan bishops, chief advisors on making decisions about diocesan protocols and keeping them aligned with the CDC protocols and the protocols of the whole um, universe of epidemiologists. So without further ado, Jody Guest, thank you again for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the uh, time I get to spend with you. Well, I, I, I love that as well. I, I just appreciate everything about you and what you're doing. And you're such a public service. Uh, servant. And I just realized that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is with us. And I just want to say, oh, I'm so glad we have a Ruth Bader Ginsburg doll like that uh, with us. Uh, it's it's interesting how what people collect. It's it's uh, I love it. So there's several things to talk about. And we're going to kind of go deep into the bishops changing uh, the protocols. But before we do that, I thought that all of us would be very interested in just checking on how you are. What is your life like as an epidemiologist in a in a pandemic? Um, it's very different than it was a year ago. So a year ago, I actually just returned home from Alaska. My only my second trip I've had um, in the past twelve months. My first was the week before that, where I was in Boston doing a seroprevalence survey for COVID-19. So, you know, my life, like all, all of the other folks has been very constrained space-wise. I spend an inordinate amount of time sitting right here in this chair, in this room um, on Zoom. And I don't think that that's particularly unique. I think from an epidemiology perspective, the things that have been different for me this year is, um, it, well, first of all, people are talking about what we do, and that's really different. Um, and analyzing every every statement and mistake and misstatement and and um, and questioning a lot of what we've been saying. Um, it has been both heartening and disheartening this year to see differences play out. I think social media has been both our friend and our foe. 24-hour uh, news media has been our friend and our foe. And, um, and I think some of the hardest things for me in the past year have been watching uh, people's lack of regard for our connectedness and lack of regard for science mm. and have been unwavering in their commitment, some folks, to, um, to dismantling the the conversations we've been having rather than dismantling all the things that we're asking for, which are um, all the inequities that we've seen and, and things like this. So there's a lot of place for passion in the past year. And some of it's been very, very well-placed and some of it's been 
in my opinion, not as well placed. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I I have I have reflected many times on the fact that my mother was a science teacher in public school, mm. and whenever I run into uh, the kind of diminishment of science and the scientific method and people who are scientists and think like scientists, I found a, my getting my back up a little bit, you know, yeah. um, because I was raised, I mean, all of us go through science classes, but I was raised with a, a mother who taught it and respected it. And the other thing that gets me, Jody, is religious people who are anti-scientific. Mm. And my father was a Baptist minister. My mother was a great church lady in addition to being a science teacher. And she had it all worked out about how God was in the mix of the science, you know? So, yeah. and I, I know you are a practicing Episcopalian and you have all that going on. So thank you very much um, for hanging in there. I know you, you have no uh, option, but to joyfully hang in there because I felt how committed you are as a ministry to you. your, to your science. And I appreciate that so much. Yeah. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. So I'm on your side. I got your back, uh, George. <laughs> if anybody messes with you, tell them to come. I want to <laughs> tangle with me. <laughs> I'll be sure to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so Jody, um, big deal this past week. We clergy had had a meeting with the bishop. And he said, probably pretty soon, we're going to uh, say that you can gather indoors and we're going not to think it through in all the details. We're gonna leave a lot of it up to you. We'll still have certain boundaries. And then by George, the very, I mean, four days later, here we were getting something from him. And you know, the backstage of everything going on in the church. All of a sudden, we were having all these intense meetings about, you know, how many people are we going to have outside and inside and da, 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 da. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the thinking that went on with your advisory group and your relationship with him. Sure. So, you know, I, I cannot say enough about the bishop and his willingness to follow the science and the numbers and, and to make some really hard calls. We have asked him to be a leader in keeping our community safe. And he has stuck with us through all that we've asked of him and, um, and has taken a very hard line of, it is safer for us to be online than it is for us to be together. And we've done some baby steps with outdoor gatherings that started in the fall. And I think those were really important to do and um, by far the safest way for us to do them. And there were even times when I thought that those maybe should be moved um, back on online on Zoom. As we were hitting the fall holidays um, and moving into the winter holidays, we really saw our numbers get extremely out of control. And, um, and you know, so he's been very thoughtful in following that. What we also know is that our numbers are currently better than they were in the fall 
and um, and through the winter months, they are still not as good as they were consistently last summer. And so there's some tension, you know, in what you do with that. But at the same time, you know, we call those who are struggling with COVID-19 long haulers, or that's one of the terms, but we're all long haulers in this pandemic. You know, we've all been struggling and, um, and the mental health issues, the lack of ability to connect. Some people connect better through their computer monitors than others. Um, I've gotten pretty adjusted to it, but others, that's really not uh, fulfilling their needs. And so there's this tension between public health that includes the mental health of all those we're caring for and wanting to gradually move back to our new version of normal. And so as we do see numbers coming down and as we, we do recognize the toll that this year has taken on everyone um, and with our increasing vaccination rates, it was, it was the, the intersection of those three things that really led us to where we are right now, which is some tempered um, in-person gatherings still distancing, still masked, still registering in case we need to contact trace, recognizing that this may be a step forward that may not last. Um, you know, that this is a dance that we're doing with this virus. And, um, but in our, but a strong hope that this is the beginning of the light at the end of the tunnel. And it seems from a, a church perspective, that's pretty cool to have right at Easter, right? That's, that's a pretty nice cool. parallel. It's very cool. Yeah, we're, we're, um, we're taking it slow. We we have a, you know, as I think many parishes have in the Diocese of Atlanta, have their groups that are meeting. And we have a, a couple of epidemiologists on our parish team. And um, one was very, very clear. She says, um, I don't want us to make a mistake by going too fast. Yes. And you can just go too fast on this thing, Absolutely. even with this new license from the bishop. So um, we're having two outdoor gatherings on Easter, in addition to our online, uh, and it'll be quite festive, et cetera. And then it's the next Sunday that we'll have our first indoor gathering, but we're only starting with 50 rather than going to the 75. We just want to be able to see that we've got our process down. I think that that's great. Um, I do think that our our wishes and desires to be together do need to be tempered. And um, I think baby steps are the right way to move forward to make sure it's a manageable system um, right. because it's not back to the before times um, and it's not going to be for a while. Right. Yeah. The only thing that you know, I'm, I'm able to live with everything. Uh, and the, the thing I'm struggling with the most is not sting. And I think that's the, the case with, with all of us. Do you have any sense of when we'll be able to sing again? I know that's a very kind of a relatively superficial question to ask you, Jody, but it's it's really, I mean, that's part of our worship, isn't it? I know, it is. Um, so singing on Zoom is super <laughs> safe. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting because there are some things we can do safer on Zoom than we can do in person. And singing right. is still um, a great way to transmit this virus. And, um, and, and that's 
that's the way that is until we're vaccinated at a higher rate that's going to be something that is is not going to be eased up on just for protection and so you know everything's a risk benefit ratio in this decision making process and so you know if you had two people the opposite ends of a football stadium and they were together singing, that's really different than having 75 people or 50 people indoors. And so which would you rather have? Yep. Oh yeah. I'm totally with you. I, and actually I'm glad that we went there because um, you're helping me educate some people who've been particularly disappointed. Yeah. That they couldn't sing hail the festival day or welcome happy morning or something like that on Easter. Right. Absolutely. I get it. Um, but you can in your home and you can in your car and you can when you're outside by yourself or with your family unit. That's right. That's Um, right. Yeah. Good deal. So, um, let's talk about the numbers. mm -hmm. Um, I'm, and, and I'm going to integrate into this a question about the variants that we have. Okay. Um, because I understand that the numbers don't, just because they are getting better, doesn't necessarily mean that they're guaranteed to continue to get better. That's right. And then we have these factors called the variants coming in. Um, and that's, you know, driving me crazy because just because you're fully vaccinated doesn't mean necessarily that you are protected from a variant. Um, so if you could be a little science with, do some sure. science talk with us right now about that. Yeah, absolutely. So viruses mutate. This is a known thing. It would be highly unusual if they didn't. In fact, we would wonder what was going on if these viruses didn't mutate. And the more spread there is, the more room we give it to mutate. So as our numbers got up so out of control in the late uh, winter, Um, or end of 2020, beginning of 2021, we gave this virus a lot of places to mutate. And um, and it did. And currently we see some of those mutations becoming the more prevalent mutations that we have in the United States. And two of our vaccines that we have, the Pfizer and the Moderna, our first two that we had were not tested in their clinical trials during the time of these mutations that being out there. What we also know is in the United States, we weren't testing for a lot of mutations. We were testing very, very small percentages of our COVID-19 samples. And so we really weren't having a handle on what the mutations look like. Um, But a couple other places were doing that. You know, the United Kingdom and South Africa and uh, Brazil have all given us a lot of information about mutations. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine, the latest one to be um, given emergency use authorization, actually was tested in the time of variants. And so it is a hard comparison to take the data from that vaccine and compare it directly to the other two because they were tested at different times in our mutation life cycle. Um, so that's a little bit of background. Um, as far as um, as we're getting vaccinated, we really do believe our vaccines still are quite good with these variants. And um, and so that's the excellent news. We also believe that it's going to take a fair number of mutations for these vaccines to not work well. 
Um, although the people working on the development of these vaccines are preparing in case there needs to be a booster for particularly those two mRNA vaccines that um, a bunch of us have already gotten. But because we don't have a, enough really substantial data yet about how these vaccines protect us with these different mutations, that is part of the reason why we're still asking people to mask up while we continue to increase our numbers of those who are vaccinated. But a couple of things are going to happen as we, um, if we continue to mask up when we're out in public, and we can talk about the CDC guidance on when we don't need to in a second, um, we are helping the transmission of both the virus and the mutations of the virus from continuing. And so as our numbers go down, and as we protect each other from more spread, we are stamping out more of these mutations. And then, and then in parallel, as more vaccinations go up, we're going to win this race against this, this virus, or at least get to a place where you know, we're not constantly saying, please separate, please wear your mask, please don't get together with people who aren't inside your bubble or your pod. Um, and that's our goal is to get to that. So it is, um, you know, several different tensions are working together, but everything we do to keep the spread down, keeps mutations down, keep and gets us faster to where we want to go. And where does the concept herd immunity play into what you've just described? Yeah, so herd immunity means, um, in general, it means that when enough people have something, if you're resistant to it or not going to get it again, protected from it, that we get to a place where it can't spread super easily. And in general, it's believed that you need somewhere between 75 to 85% of the folks to have herd immunity to get to a place where the virus is not going to have a lot of places to live. And it's then going to protect all those others who've not gotten to herd immunity. So there are a couple of kinds of herd immunity though. There's natural infection, and then there's vaccine oriented herd immunity. What we know is that natural infection herd immunity, um, which there were a couple of scientists that, that tried to suggest that this was the right thing to do. Um, and my best corollary to that is back in the day when um, chickenpox was not something we vaccinated for, it was really common if you didn't haven't had the chickenpox yet for your parents to send you to go play with someone who had chickenpox so you could get it really early. That's kind of a, the idea of this natural oriented herd immunity because then you got it, you got over it. But that was not something people were dying from. And so herd immunity from natural infection from COVID-19 was kind of horrifying to, to think about from a science perspective, because that meant we were willing to say a certain percentage of us were going to die for the benefit of the rest of us getting through this. So I don't like that idea. Um, that feels very Hunger Games to me, you know, like who's the tribute? Who, who are the people that are, we're willing to let die? And we can't pick them, they're just going to happen. And so um, we, a bunch of us really pushed hard back against this idea of natural infection herd immunity, but vaccine oriented herd immunity is exactly what we wanna get to. We need to get to a place where more than 75% of us have been vaccinated. And then this virus is not gonna have very many places to go. 
And when it and when its numbers start to diminish, its ability to mutate is also diminished. And um, and that's what we want to have happen. Yeah. And do you, as a scientist, attach or allow your brain to attach itself to some kind of date about when you're hoping or expecting herd immunity to take place? I do. Um, <laughs> and it's both a, a slightly professional uh, date as well as a very personal one. I have I am very attached to the date of Thanksgiving 2021. Um, and I'm attached to that because there was some original data. I, th I think it's a conservative date. And I'm thrilled to say that. Um, and I'm going to hold on to a conservative date because then I won't be as disappointed. Um, but the New York Times did a really wonderful um, uh, trajectory showing if we had been vaccinating at the level that we were about two months ago, we would hit 70% on November 28th. And that was assuming we continued at the very slow rate we were going at the beginning. And we've mm. thankfully picked up substantially both in the number of people being vaccinated daily and the number of doses available to vaccinate folks. And so I think we're going to be ahead of that. Um, but that's kind of where I'm landing so that I protect myself and my patients, um, you know, to think that we'll be at a place where we'll be gathering. It's also the holiday where I always go home and, you know, to my parents' home and I didn't get to last year. So it's kind of my hurrah I'm waiting for to see my family that I haven't seen since Thanksgiving 2019, um, which is crazy to think about. Um, but I do think we'll get there before then. I think there's a chance we'll get there before school starts in the fall. And that really should be the goal. Sounds good. You mentioned earlier that it would be good for us to talk about the importance of masking, even for people. Well, what, what is the role of masking for people who are fully vaccinated? Right. When do you mask and when do you not? So um, really exciting new guidance from the CDC is to me, one of the most exciting pieces of guidance we've gotten in the past 12 months, which is if you're fully vaccinated, which means you are two weeks after the last dose of your vaccine. So if you've got um, Pfizer or Moderna, that means 14 days after your second dose. If you've got Johnson & Johnson, it's 14 days after your only dose of the vaccine. So that's what we're gonna call fully vaccinated. If you are there, then you may gather indoors unmasked with other fully vaccinated folks. Beautiful, that's some normality you know, coming back and, um, and as we see more and more people being vaccinated on a daily basis, the likelihood that you're gonna have some friends that you haven't been gathering with indoors or unmasked, all of a sudden you're gonna get to see their full faces again. And that's pretty cool. Um, and so we know that that guidance is there, but again, it's fully vaccinated folks with fully vaccinated people indoors. Um, from an, an outdoor perspective, every time I go out of my house, unless I'm um, going into another person's house that's fully vaccinated at this point in time, I'm still masking. And that is also part of the guidance. And that is my contribution to helping my community stay safe and making sure I'm not a carrier to help this virus mutate. 
Um, and I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. And so for the moment, while our numbers are still where they are, both disease numbers and vaccine numbers, that is part of the role that we all play, even as vaccinated people. Got it. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, so now I want to go back to something you said earlier that I think is really, really important. Before I do that, no, let me ask you about, do you, Jody, think that we might have to have annual vaccinations for COVID? We don't know. Is that going to um, be around? Yeah, we don't know. Um, the chance that there might be a booster is is not, um, I wouldn't be surprised. It, it might end up being a yearly vaccine that you get at the same time as your flu vaccine. Um, right. That's kind of worst case scenario. And that's not a terrible scenario. We already do that with the flu. Um, best case scenario is a one and done and you're good for the rest of your life. Um, and you know, somewhere in the middle are this, this idea of every once in a while you might need to get a booster and what kind of timing that would be, we don't really know. We are still in that zone of we don't know yet because our, our uh, most fully vaccinated people are still only about six months into vaccination seven months for some of the earliest in clinical trials. So it's really not clear to us what that's going to look like. If the numbers go back up again and mutations become super prevalent and we get more of them, we're going to lead ourselves into needing a booster for sure. If we can keep the mutations down, there is a better chance that we won't need that. Makes sense. All of that makes sense. So now to, to the question that um, you placed into my brain when you said something earlier about this is a public health issue and public health includes mental health. Mm -hmm. You and I have not talked about um, mental health before, um, but I'd love for you to talk about mental health. Uh, sure. Well, <laughs> we, I think, Largely, we have a mental health problem in our country pre-pandemic. Um, it's stigmatized at a, at, and it shouldn't be. Um, we somehow talk about it as being different than other health-related issues that we might be willing to share. I have high blood pressure. I, um, you know, I need to lose weight. I've got diabetes. All these things are, are sometimes stigmatized and sometimes not, but mental health carries this huge stigma with it that is really unfortunate. And it makes it something that um, is harder to get care for. It's harder to share with friends that you get care for. And if there's ever a thing you need support for, it's probably in that category. And, um, and what we've seen is this lack of connectedness that we've had the last 12 months, the loss of jobs, the loss of in-person gatherings, the loss of in-person schooling for our children, our mental health support needs are through the roof. And, um, you know, and particularly with our children who we like to pretend um, don't have mental health concerns. And, um, and it is really hard for our social children who are learning all of their engagement um, and social um, 
uh, practicing their social techniques with each other and growing as, as these cool people, they're doing it alone and, um, and on Zoom. And, um, you know, and teachers are trying and are doing the best with what they've got, but it is not the same. And so we're really seeing our children's mental health resources maxed and not capable of keeping up with the resources that are needed for our, our youth in particular, um, and not to diminish any other age group, but that's an age group we don't talk about a lot. And that's an age group where this pandemic has really, really um, brought significant need because we've had them at home to protect them and their teachers and the staff from COVID-19 we've created this other issue that we have got to be able to um, better support. And so uh, to use the word tension again, it is a tension between protecting and yet knowing you're perhaps causing some risk and um, in somewhere else. And so, um, you know, if you think of like a balloon and you push on it on one side and it pops out on the other, that's kind of what has happened with, um, uh, as a consequence of some of the public health prevention that we've required or requested in this country. Um, and our, some of our children are paying that price. I want to get to the a question about proactivity in just a minute about mental health. But let's talk about responding mm -hmm. to symptoms in friends, family, colleagues, and our children. What are best practices, Jody? when we see some imbalances coming up? Yeah, I mean, checking in um, on people. And um, I think it's important when you check in to lead with, this has been hard. And, um, and acknowledging that up front so that you're, that immediately starts to eliminate some of the barriers and the stigma to talk about it. Um, this is hard. I, you know, I suffer this way. And, um, and when you lead with that, sometimes that makes it easier for others to also share, even if they're not sharing, you're normalizing. And so um, that's important. I think listening, you know, to our friends and making sure we, we know where they are and what they're up to and, and how we can, um, you know, keep track of each other when we don't run into each other the way we did before. But if um, I have a friend I haven't heard from in a while on text or something, you know, checking in with them and making sure, hey, are you okay? I've missed you. Um, and I think we have to work a little bit harder on our connections during this time of physical distance because the spontaneity is gone. Um, and the um, interaction with each other is gone. It also means perhaps texting is not sufficient. Perhaps you do need a Zoom call um, or a FaceTime so that you can see each other um, as rather than hiding behind or having the ability to hide behind a text. You know, I'm fine. Well, is fine good enough? Is fine that person's standard answer or is fine different? From what you normally hear from them and being really sensitive to that. That's so helpful. And some of these things are proactive as well. Um, gosh, I really appreciate your saying, you know, just lead with the acknowledgement that this has been tough. 
And I think clergy need to do that as well, is to, to model how hard it's been for us and to give people some license to share that with one another and with us. Are there, are there um, regimens that you think it's important for us to incorporate in our daily lives that act as kind of proactive mental health disciplines? Absolutely. Um, exercise, getting outside of the house. And I am a um, not a model citizen <laughs> for either one of those things. Um, but last year, when I was coming back from Alaska, right as the world was shutting down, um, and actually had trouble getting back to my home because everything was shutting down um, as I was trying to travel. I um, went to work on this and I went to work on this at a feverish rate that was not good and not sustainable, I should say. And um, I'm, I was lucky to have a couple of friends say to me, uh, we're going we're gonna to take you outside for a walk basically like I was their new pet. We're going to walk you daily um, to make sure that, that you mandate a break in your schedule. And um, I'm lucky that they, they walked me for enough months that it became a bit of a habit. And, um, and I, I, during the winter months, I kind of fell back out of the habit or started doing it more inside on a treadmill. And um, I think the outside part of it was important. Um, it's stunning to think that you could sit in the same chair in the same office and not leave your house for five or six days in a row. I mean, when has that ever happened before? And so I really, I really think that that's super important. And I do want to say I am by no means a mental health expert. That is not my area of expertise. So I'm it. only sharing the things that I have worked for me and the things right. I picked up on from experts um, who I've listened to. Um, but I don't want to overstate. Um, yeah that I know what I'm talking about. I got it. I do love the idea of walking your friends. Yeah. Um, yeah, be a friend walker. Yeah. I really, really like that. Yeah, I uh, I have some people, and that's the first thing they ask me when they get me on the Zoom or the phone. Have you walked today? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, and too frequently, I have to say no. Um, and I, I know that you're not a neurologist and a neuroscientist also. Um, on the day that I had eight Zoom calls in one day, at the end, I got a glass of bourbon and went to my wife and said, not, a, not another day. We just, yeah. yeah. I mean, it does something to your brain, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed. Um, yeah, I think I haven't, gone back and looked to see what my longest day is, but I know um, a couple of weeks ago, I had three days in a row where I had a minimum of 14 Zoom calls. And I, one of the days I know I had 16 and um, it's exhausting. And it is, um, it is harder to connect through Zoom than it is in person. Um, I'm an extreme extrovert. And so it is, um, you know, this is where I get my energy. Um, and I've, made do with zoom energy with people and I've gotten pretty good at it, but 16 hours of it is a lot of zoom time and, um, not the sort of thing we should be doing for our personal mental health. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, you're a Zoom jock. <laughs> yeah. These days. <laughs> I thought eight Zooms. Oh my God, you're a yeah. jock. I'm okay. not trying to put your eight hours to shame. I'm really not. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I know you're a scientist and a doctor um, and not a philosopher. And here's two philosophical questions that are uh, important questions to to ask. And one is, where are we now? And the other is, where do we go from here? And wherever your mind goes, Jody, in responding to that, um, I would really appreciate hearing your reflections. Well, my mind immediately goes to the data because that's what I do. Um, you know, and so where are we? We're kind of slightly worse off, but close to what we were this past summer when we were really scared. And, um, and um, I'm glad we're back to that number. I am um, sad we're only back to that number. You know, so I have very mixed feelings about that level of, of COVID-19 being out in the community. Um, I certainly wish we were back to last March um, as far as numbers. I do not wish to relive this year. Um, so I wanna be clear when I say I wanna be back to last March. Um, I, I struggle with how tired we all are of this. And I struggle with the fact that we've made some pretty significant strides in the last month and a half. And yet if we get too tired, those, accomplishments will go away and they will go away so very quickly. Um, it does not take much for this virus to catch on and be the firestorm that we saw in November, December, and January, where we were, we 5,000 people were dying a day in this country from COVID-19. We cannot get back there. We had a hundred, you know, close to 200,000 people in the hospital every single day for that um, my husband and I recently discussed the fact that months and months ago, I said we were going to hit a half a million deaths from COVID-19. And he said, there's just no way. And I think we were at, you know, like 80,000 deaths or yeah, 80,000 deaths or something like that. When, when I said that, and I didn't pull that number out of the air, that was a number based on a model. Um, and, and we've gone past it and, um, you know, so where are we? We've suffered immense loss. We, we have so many people who've lost their jobs. We have people who've lost their homes. Um, the number of people who are food insecure today is substantially different than it was a year ago. We have children who've um, had some level of education for the last year, and a lot of it's not been what we would have hoped for them. Um, so this has been a year of loss and we are fooling ourselves if we don't acknowledge that and mourn all of that and then strive to change it. Um, this has also been a year where we have really, for the first time in my lifetime, I think, or at least my adult lifetime, had a more substantial conversation about inequities in our country Unfortunately, those inequities came from violence. They came from um, 
you know, tragic deaths that we watched in Atlanta, you know, now our Asian Pacific Islander um, communities are suffering again. And, um, and the only way that those losses, um, hmm, I'm trying to think how to say this. We should honor those losses by being unwilling to let that continue. And so I do think if we look for positives in COVID-19, it's that it's given us a stage to have some national conversations about how bigoted we are, how racist we are, um, and, and for people to say, I'm not okay with that. And so hopefully people will say, I'm not okay with that. Um, and, you know, we've got a bit of a reckoning going on in this country and it's long past due. Um, and so I've, I've said consistently for the last year, well, probably the last 10 months, if COVID-19 is the reason we finally attack some of these issues and say, we will not let them continue and we will fight for change, 12 months at home will have been okay. Um, but 12 at home, months at home for me, has been okay because I live a privileged lifestyle. And so I, you know, want to acknowledge that that's a very privileged statement on my part. Um, so I rambled. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. You, you listed it um, in a very moving way and I'm taking it in and I appreciate it. Um, well, just, dwelling with the inequities and coming to terms with how bigoted and racist we are and that it's not okay and there must be a moral reckoning and we all do i think that's another thing that that has been going on i think that particularly people of privilege have been taking a look at mm -hmm. their privilege and that they have a responsibility to um unlearn a lot of things that we're taught. Where, where are we um, with our interconnectivity quotient? Have we learned anything about that? Or are we still worshiping the religion of separateness? I would hope an infectious disease model of a virus taking hold would be a great way for people to understand how connected we are and every single thing that we do shifts something out into the world. Um, physics is not a class that I loved, <laughs> but the physics of if you move one thing, something else responds. Um, you know, that is what's going on with this pandemic. We all um, think that we've stayed super safe in the last year. And it's remarkable to talk to people and say, you know, I haven't seen anyone. And then um, you actually ask some more detailed questions. And well, I haven't seen anyone means I've gone to the grocery store five times this week and I've run out to this store and I've gone here and I've gone there. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing that, but we should, but we need to, to pay a little bit more attention to how we name that. Um, that I haven't seen anyone largely means I haven't seen my friends. I haven't seen the people I wanted to go out and see. But every single person you've interacted with is a potential risk and a potential recipient of your risks. And um, 
And so I hope we're starting to see how, how tremendously connected our society is and, um, and how we all um, have a role to play in that. Uh, positive and negative, you know, we're, and we're calling on people to use that connection in their, in the most positive way possible. And so masking is not meant to be political. It's meant to be your connection and your, and an outward sign of, I recognize that I am connected to the rest of you and I care about the rest of you. And, and my mask is about you. It's a little bit about me, but it's mostly about you. And um, I think when I see people who are unwilling to mask, that is my biggest stumbling block. Do you not care about me? Do you not care about someone else? Do you have to know them to care? Or are you just okay that that's another human in front of you? I'm okay that that's another human and I hope the rest of us are too. And and I really think a lot of us have gotten there. but that's the way I wish we had talked about it from the beginning. I think it would have made a bigger difference. Yeah, yeah. When you talked about masking, I kind of began to hear that as the definition of a sacrament. Mm-hmm. You know, the sacrament is an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And masking is an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual recognition that you matter to me. Yeah. Yeah, caring for you. Well, that's a good place to end on. I, I, I do want you to know and feel that there are thousands of people who don't know you, um, who are grateful for you, um, because Bishop Wright has talked about how important you have been in advising him, and every move he's made. I've thought about your having some kind of impact behind the scenes on that. And um, it's been hard work. I look at the pressures that he's on. And one other thing that he says that we often forget is that he is trying to bring us as a diocese along together. And so we're not gonna have this exception and this exception because they're in one place and not another city and that kind of stuff. And I really do respect that as well. But thank you. Thank you so much. Um, And uh, I've got six more months in this job and I'm just gonna keep calling on you. I need you in your advice and your wisdom. Well, please do. Uh, This is a phenomenal connection for me. And I I really enjoy speaking to you. I I echo your praise for um, Bishop Wright and, and the incredible leadership that he has shown through this. It's been an honor to get to work with him um, and, and to have him, um, you know, really listen and respect the, the guidance that we've provided. It's not been easy. We've asked really hard things, yeah. um, but we've not done it lightly and we've done it um, in a way that we mean to be protective. Um, so the the grace he has shown in all of that has been incredible. Yeah. Have you planned your Easter celebration? I have not. Well, blessings on your planning and blessings you. on your Easter. And I hope that you know the resurrection of life in Jesus in this time. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much. I appreciate you letting me come back on and I really enjoyed my time talking with you. Oh, good. Thank you. Same here. And thank you all for being with us. Stay tuned. We will be uh, continuing our Sunday forums after Easter. Uh, happy Easter to everyone. <laughs>